Jennifer's Body is a terrible, terrible movie. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm positive. Cameron, what is this film about? So I watched it yesterday. This isn't even a movie podcast. No, I know, but it's like it's the it's it's a really bad movie. Um, Oh my gosh! So it's about Megan Fox, who is the high school um, one of the few Megan Fox films we'll be talking about today. (laughs) are you gonna finish your description already yeah so megan fox is um you know the popular girl Uh and amanda seyfried is not the popular girl but is she wait is megan fox in high school in this film yes (laughs) and she still looks like 30 yeah (laughs) okay um and then they go to a band at a bar they go see a band at a bar rock on and the band burns down the place, st- kidnaps Megan Fox, oh my. and turns her into into a succubus. What? Um, because they need a virgin, but she's not a virgin. So the band's like death metal? No, no, no. They're like they're like Satan they're like metal? Fall Out Boy. <laughs> 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 yeah, no, I know. And so, <laughs> are you serious? Yes, yeah, so we I, have to go see this film. I swear, this is a comedy. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Everything Comes from Something podcast. My name is Isaac Ransom. I'm Cameron Tuttle. Thank you for joining us today. I don't even know what episode number it is, but today we will 13. be talking about. I think Lucky. it's thirteen. Friday the thirteenth. It's not even Friday. I know. It's not even going to be the 13th of when this releases on a Friday. No, it's not. Anyways, uh, today we are talking about aspects of powerful narrative. So this episode will be coinciding with different films, books, stories that we've learned about. It's a little bit of like an English narrative perspective view. Um, yeah, well, it's just kind of a grab bag of, of things that we love that stories do. Right, is, I, is how I, I see it. I'll be the first to say that I'm not very qualified to be talking about this, although I'd like to think myself insightful. I haven't really studied it. Cameron, on the other hand, has done a decent amount of studying for narrative. I things. have studied the narrative. Although, I will say, when when I was in my film analysis class, um, we basically, most of the time, we talked about postmodernism, which is like the exact opposite of what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> so it's like, it's, it's terrible. For those of you who are wondering if we're going to get back to Jennifer's body, we will. But first, shout out to our executive producer on Patreon, Darren O'Neill. Thank you for supporting the show. Thank you, Darren. We love you, dude. And uh, if you guys want to support us out, all our content is free. comes out every Friday. Uh, just go check us out at Patreon slash ECFS Podcast. There are different tiers you can donate at. Um, and if you give up to $5 a month, you can have a question for sure read on the show. Mm. For sure read on the show, unless as it's completely as it's, inappropriate. As long as it's not about the Israeli-Palestinian. I just family. wanted to get back to that. Episode 12, we had a, a listener submit a question. His name is Juzo. Um, we will not be reading any more of those questions. <laughs> uh, for, we, we definitely said we were, but then we were like, wait, we're totally just jipping our own product. So if you guys want to send us questions, we'd love to answer them. Anyways. So I do have one clarification to make. In in the episode when we talked about co- the college experience, Jesus wanted me to, 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 to don't give to this clarify don't this. give this man any more fame so than he deserves. He, he I said that that he hated the the roommates. That's actually not true. He wanted me to clarify. Oh. He did not hate the roommates. He loved the the people, but he didn't like a specific roommate, and he didn't like people who came over. And he did, he wasn't he wasn't so happy about the antics. Okay, well, I'm, I'm glad you cleared Not up the people. Uh, the antics. I'm, I'm, 
I'm glad you wasted like 30 seconds of yeah, the podcast okay. time. Let's get into the topic. It's a lot. Um, d- before we were planning this out, we were like, man, how are we going to word this? Because there were different things we want to discuss. But now we have like way too much to talk about. So let's get into it. Jennifer's Body. Okay. So Jennifer's Body is a terrible movie. But but okay. So, so the idea kind of is for what we're doing, we're, we're going to contrast a couple different themes um, and, and things that we like really take away from from movies that we we like and stories that we like because um, we'll be referring to a couple different novels yeah and and the one the one that kind of kicked the kicked it off was um you know the 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 whole movie of of 12 angry men which is about it's about skepticism and the law and 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 it's about um you know guilty and being proven innocent and uh, you know sorry being proven guilty and and being presumed innocent. right right so um, what we want to do in this episode is like Cameron was saying, dive into what we think are not necessarily exclusive aspects, but just our personal aspects that we think make a narrative powerful. Yeah, yeah. Potent to the point of where after consuming, you continue to think about these deeper themes and ideas. And these are some examples that we've come up with and thought to ourselves, man, like if more movies would just draw in these ideas and, and display them in a visual way, or you know, if it's a book be able to show and not just tell these specific experiences, we think that those narratives would just crack it out of the park in terms of what they're going for. And, and so for me, for me, I guess the the thing that um, really like ticks my boxes is, is like, does this make me either question a something that I that I feel about the world, or does it does it make me like reevaluate? Um, you know, my my decisions, or does it give me an, a specific insight on 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 you know what's essentially what what the story is saying and i think all of the all of the the positive movies uh that we have brought up and none of the negative movies um do that right so so they make me they make me like really consider like oh wow this is this is either something that i hadn't considered about myself before or this is something that i um took for granted or you know i i it, it makes me real reevaluate um, the the sort of I don't know moral uh, prejudgments that I have. Yeah, I think there's something cool. So here's the worst feeling. Let me go off this first. Okay. When Jennifer's you see, uh, we'll get to that. Okay. <laughs> when you see a film trying to punch home an interesting idea or something cool, but they do it miserably, you instantly know. You instantly cross your arms and say, "Oh, I know what they're trying to say right now." Yeah. yeah. And that is no fun. That is not you know, intellectual at all. There's no value and meat to it. It's just like when people are trying to say something and they just say it. Yeah. And there's yeah. no like self internal reflection or whatnot. Well, I'd say, I'd say the big, the big problem, um, is that movies like that, to me, they become more, um, more like propaganda almost. It, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's, there's, there's some, I don't know. There, this is something that that me and Jesus talk about a lot. Is is the idea of like what you? All movies have a statement that they're trying to say. All movies have have something that they're that they're trying to put out. Um, but but what what is it that makes that makes a movie cross the line into into being propagandistic or being preachy? You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, essentially, just grandstanding on on a specific point. And, and that's what Jennifer's body is all about. 
So no, not really. But it <laughs> is. Kidding. It is just a. It's just a terrible movie. More than anything. It's well, you said terrible. so. The first subject we kind of want to talk about as we're going alongside talking about Twelve Angry Men is there. There's this cool. Well, first of all, if you don't know the story of Twelve Angry Men, essentially it follows a a uh, jury mm-hmm. and their decision against a criminal who was accused of murder. Yeah, I believe. Murder, murder. And there's a racial aspect to it. I'm pretty sure the murderer is black, right? Yeah. He's a black young it's kid. A, the alleged murder. Right, the alleged it's murder. Given due. And most of all of the jury agrees that this person is um, guilty. Well, there's, there's, you know, an eyewitness testimony. They have, and they have, um, you know, a murder weapon. So, Right. And so the reason that we said that this scene is good, even though the scene is the entire movie, is because the movie takes place all in this behind closed doors jury interaction. Right, and so you have these different people who are like, "I just want to go home." Yeah. You have some people who are like, the "I know." Baseball game's coming up. Yeah, it's I, hot. I have some people who are like, some characters are like, "I know what it is." Some people are undecided, but there's one character who's just like, "He's not." I don't think he's guilty. And you, the whole scene, the whole film is all in this one room, and essentially he convinces each person individually on how he believes that the person who is being accused of murder is truly not guilty. Yeah. And there, when I first saw this film, you know, the narrative and the story was interesting. You know, people like murder mysteries and whatnot. But I think it showed sort of the power of being a skeptic in a lot of situations because it, excuse me, unveils like truth yeah, behind yeah. it. You know, even when you're skeptical and you're wrong for being skeptical, you still know what the truth is, right? Right, yeah. And I think this film and this story really shows that idea and i honestly if it didn't do it in such a way that it does because it he like the character who doesn't believe that the the person being accused of murder is guilty he doesn't necessarily show all his cards right away instead you get to see him slowly come to a conclusion as he's trying to sway everyone else yeah. on his decision as well and it and it shows the power of really playing devil's advocate in a lot of different situations right right yeah and i I think it's um it's kind of a spectacular example of of um not just skepticism but but like i i think there's there's a difference between skepticism in a um negative yeah not negative but but sort of um in just the the broad sense of being like oh you know i I don't believe you or blah 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 blah, whatever you know like like i think i think skepticism has an associated attitude with it um but i think this this film really shows that that a healthy dose of skepticism is is really important and and necessary it's not just like like they were essentially just arguing about about his life right right like there there there's there's serious consequences to this and and I would hope that if I was falsely accused of of murder, that that there would be people who were skeptical of the evidence against me. You know, yeah, and, yeah, you would hope that, especially with your court hearing happening tomorrow. So. <laughs> Please, jury, <laughs> that would be no. swaying the jury. Intimidate, You're under arrest, intimidating again. the jury. Yeah, You're under arrest again. Um, you know, and so so I I think I think to me it's like it's almost there there's a 
a necessity to to skepticism is is what the film is saying. There's yeah. there's a necessity to to having this healthy dose of um of saying like what if we're wrong? What if what what if he's not what if he's not guilty? Yeah, and it's amplified and and dramatized at the stakes of a man's life. Exactly. Yeah. But you can apply it to you know your your day to day situation, and that's one thing that will continue yeah, to hit your home. Education, your everything, right? With with narrative is good and powerful. Narratives can somehow help you step into the shoes of whatever character you're watching, and and it can be someone that doesn't even relate to you that much. It's just the way that it is spoon fed to you. Now, you said you want. We were talking about like we were like well with every great powerful narrative aspect we should also have a not so great right and you were like jennifer's body it's all you're talking about today you won't shut up about this movie because it's so bad i thought it was some physical fitness it's on my it's on it's on the brain you know so jennifer's body it's a weird satanic mind. horror film about fallout boy it's kidnapping bad. a high schooler who looks like she's 30 yeah and she and so she she becomes a, a succubus. What does that mean? I think you're talking about succulent when you say that. No. <laughs> I'm looking at a plant behind me. I'm like, what are you talking no, about? No, no, no. Succubus is is the um, incubus. No, 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 no. That's no. a good band. It's it's the demon who who looks like a lady, a hot lady, and so oh. she she um, seduces men and then kills them and eats them. Wow. Yeah. So that that's that's what this that's what this movie is about. So she kills dudes and oh. eats them, and so and so Amanda Seyfried is like, why did the Fallout Boy do this? Because they wanted to be famous. Why did they make it though? Why did they turn Megan Fox into this? Well, they they didn't mean to turn her into. They were supposed to sacrifice a virgin. Oh, but instead they turned her into. But she's not a virgin, so they turned her into a succubus. It's just the lore. It's just a stupid film so far. It, yeah, it is. So, okay, so so then Amanda Seyfried is is uh, Megan Fox's best friend, uh-huh. and she, um, she is like, "There's something wrong with Jennifer," and <laughs> eventually, this sounds okay. I know this is gonna be weird. You probably know what art film I'm talking about. I've never seen it. But it sounds a lot like some art film that I heard about where it's like a girl goes off to college, but then she likes to eat people. Like she like starts like, I don't Is remember. Is it called Raw? Yes. Yeah, I haven't seen it. It sounds like Raw. But except I think Raw Hollywood. is better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hollywood dies. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Raw sure. is an allegory. Yeah. Right? And it's French. Right. Um, but this film just sounds like an awful Hollywood. Yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> Yeah, but anyways, the the thing about skepticism is Amanda Seyfried's boyfriend, right? Amanda Seyfried comes to to him and is like, "Hey, his name is Chip." So, you know, um, is like, "Chip, I think Jennifer is a demon." <laughs> and he's like, "Then he's like, no, that's ridiculous because if your girlfriend says, "Hey, I think my best friend's a demon," the only natural response is." Hey, that's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, right? I think that's yeah, that's pretty normal. Yeah, exactly. This so. sounds like a para- powerful narrative so far. If, if if your name was Chip, would you make a, a bunch of salsa jokes as a pickup line to girls? I no. Anyways, <laughs> no. But imagine, imagine if Jules came to you and was like, "Hey, I think my sister's a demon," <laughs> and you're like, "You're like, what do you mean?" <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
and and you know you wouldn't you wouldn't believe it you wouldn't believe I, it. sure <laughs> yeah sure i wouldn't believe it <laughs> <laughs> so it just it's it's just it's just still like, can we move it's on a, it's a dumb movie yeah let's move on what did that have to do with the power of a skeptic it's just dumb i'm it's pretty sure all right so anyways <laughs> moving on to our next next aspect of powerful narratives this is something that really punches home for me and it's the power of a reflective setting and so i'm gonna i'm gonna take it back here for you folks if you're if you're enjoying them novels and english book things um there's a pretty popular book called the grapes of wrath now grapes of wrath is a novel that people either love or hate and that's because steinbeck he really shows and doesn't tell, uh, which is a powerful trait, but the book is so long that he really engrosses himself in the setting of the Dust Bowl. So the, the Grapes of Wrath takes place in the um, the migration that occurred during the Dust Bowl. Essentially, all these farmers lost their land, and they all started moving west because they were told that there were better job opportunities and, and, and whatnot. And the book is is fine. The story is interesting. But one of my favorite scenes in it is the scene that takes place at this diner. And essentially, you know, you're following one family throughout the entire novel. But this chapter takes its time and steps back and shows you a perspective of a, of a, a couple running a diner that it has no business at all. Because essentially everyone has moved out. And so there are four characters in this scene. Camera's distracted because I always talk with my hands. Sorry, man. <laughs> there are four characters in this scene, right? Uh, one is the waitress, who is, I think, the wife of the cook, who also owns the diner. And the cook is in in the back of the kitchen. And there's just all this description about how there's dust outside. It's almost like a blizzard. You know, they're they're stuck. And then there's these two truckers that are always there. And they're having the same old chippy, flirty reaction with the waitress who's there working the shop with the cook. And it, and it's there's something about this scene that just like it it takes a, it gives the reader a second to breathe because you've been following this struggling family. Right. And then it also gives you like perspective on what's going on in the world as these truckers who have seen a lot of of the Midwest discuss what's going on and and. It describes like what's going on outside of the diner is I always think of like, you know, Coruscant in in in, uh, in Star Wars, right? Oh, no. There there are these like in the background of any scene in Coruscant, there's a bunch of floating cars just kind of moving along in the background. Yeah. Now, you know, the art direction of the prequels is, is something else. OK, but I always pictured when I read this chapter, there's dust outside the windows and you just see like a migration of people. It describes that the road is packed with people moving along the road. And you have like these four characters in this desolate like wasteland essentially just kind of discussing what's going on. And the, and it's and it's acted out so normally, but there's like this underlying like s- sort of impending doom mm. on this on this business and and the way it's working and there's just this vibrant setting and I don't know something about the diner. It's just oh, I love it. I don't know. I don't know how to describe. Like I can't really describe it fully. And I'm sure if you read the chapter, you might not get the same feels I do. The chapter concludes with the family that you're following just stopping in, but it's not from their perspective. Essentially, they don't have enough money for a, one of the one of the kids wants a lollipop, and and you see like 
the waitress lady gives the kid the lollipop mm. even though he doesn't have the money. She's like, sure, like two pennies will be fine. But like it's really like 10 cents. So she like takes a hard loss. But it's like there's this real emotion and, and interaction about this business kind of falling apart. And that setting, you know, hopefully in the way I describe it, is engrossing already. Yeah. And that's sort of its whole its whole purpose, right? So I think what makes a powerful narrative in some ways is these snippets and scenes of powerful reflective settings. It gives it, it's good for pacing, but also like a setting that gives, you know, the viewer, reader, you know, listener an, an opportunity to kind of sit back and be like, Whoa, like yeah. I have a I have and, a moment to think as and, well. And also the the character. I think that's that's kind of an important, even if it's not explicitly said, right? There's, there's right. sort of this implicit notion that the character is also reflecting on, you know, the events that have happened so far. And I think, I think that that happens a lot in, in films. And I think it happens a lot in, in like large, uh, like TV shows and, yeah. um, and, uh, you know, trilogies. I think, I think there's, these reflective moments are are excellent because they're they're so real and they're so like like you you know you've had reflective experiences right? yeah you've you've had these these moments of moments of clarity i guess or moments where you you look on what you're doing or what you're not doing and you you know you you have this it's like oh man i really <laughs> I'm not doing this well. You know, I'm not doing right. this right. And I, for some reason, I, you know this about me, Cameron, but I have an obsession with diners. You love diners. I don't know what it is. Uh, there's a scene in Drive where Ryan Gosling sits down. But with, not like, oh, hold on, let's just clarify. Not like actual diners, but like fictional diners. <laughs> you, we've yeah. never gone to a diner before. I don't we think. haven't? I don't think so. I'll tell you this. I'm a big Danny's boy. Oh, you know what? We have. We've, we went to that one. And you know what's a, crazy? A I've had a lot of reflective moments in diners. Really? I don't know if it's my influence around me, but just continually happens. Mm-hmm. There's a scene in this film called Drive where Ryan Gosling sits down with a lady, and there's a lot of realization where he's he has experienced some traumatic ev- events with you know, this lady's now returning husband from jail. It's kind of complicated. But... That scene is nice. Uh, there's reflection in the Pulp Fiction diner scene with Samuel Jackson kind of going along, talking about what's going on in his head. Uh, even <clears throat> in uh, Baby Driver, there's a scene where they all sit down and it's like you get a moment to breathe from all the action and you see the characters for who they really are. Like yeah. There's this really yeah. awesome character interaction between all the criminals in that diner scene. Um, so yeah, diners just everywhere in in this self-reflection but if if you don't believe what what is it what i mean what's the what's the connection what what's the the meaning of of the diner like i don't know what it i don't know what it is but but i think you're right in that there's something to be said about like it's often a reflective moment well i think it's a social place and an environment where people usually sit down and talk Hmm. and there's something over glorified i want to say it carries on from like the 50s and 60s yeah uh, there's something glorified about sitting around the oh, table. Oh, you know, another diner, great diner scene. Um, what? In uh, Silver Linings Playbook. An excellent I, diner scene. I have not seen this. Oh, it's, okay. It's very good. Um, you know, there's it, There's something just reoccurring about, about diners and, yeah. and reflection. 
Um, I think because sometimes people have meals and that's their only time to sit down and be quiet, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, but, but it doesn't necessarily have to be limited to a diner. Um, we, I mentioned train spotting before we started recording. Mm. There's a great scene where they're in, um, like the Scot, it's in Scotland, right? Yeah. They're in like the, the Scotland Hills or something. They're, they're basically out in nature taking a hike and, the train spotting follows these Wait, guys is who are Scotland or is it Ireland? I think it's Scotland. It, it, I, I'm pretty sure it's Scotland. Okay. I'm not hundred percent sure, but it follows heroin addicts and there's a scene where they're not on heroin because yeah. usually it's a trashy, gritty, disgusting movie. Okay. Mm-hmm. But there's a scene where they're out in nature. It's like foggy and there's these beautiful green mountains and they're just having a moment where one of the friends is like, I, he's like, I'm done with this life. You yeah. know, I'm tired of it. Right. And they, it's like, they have a moment of clarity. Um, I don't know if you, like, those moments in films are the moments that punch me in the gut the most. Mm, mm. Um, although the the next the next uh, aspects we think are, are also equally as powerful, um, I just have to give light to a scene in a film that does diner scenes injustice, okay? It is disgusting you don't even know what i'm gonna talk about i have no idea what this there's is. just f- like just like me and jennifer the, there's a film called turbo man <laughs> an excellent arnold schwarzenegger masterpiece except for the scene you see wait wait is it actually a good movie except yes for this scene? i love turbo man okay <laughs> turbo man is the story of a dad whose kid is anakin skywalker from episode one and anakin skywalker says I want a Turbo Man toy. Basically, just like Buzz Lightyear. And the dad's like, oh, I'll get that for you, little Timmy. Because <laughs> that's Arnold Schwarzenegger. I get that for you, little Timmy. Um, but he, it's like two days and basically every store is sold out of Turbo Man. So he's on this quest to find Turbo Man. Mm. And essentially, it's a really stupid, like goofy 90s comedy Christmas movie. Sure. So he's like punching grandmas in the mall trying to get this toy. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty great. My favorite is when he goes he meets like this Santa. There's like a Santa in the mall. And the Santa's like, Hey, you wanna find a Turbo Man doll? He's like, I got I know where to take one. I know where to find one. <laughs> and he takes Arnold to like this underground black market, but it's like all Santas. All Santas are working in there. And they like they they like they're like He's like, oh, so give me Turbo Man doll. And and then like he hands him Turbo Man. He's like, he's gonna that's gonna be two hundred bucks. He's like, what? These are like twenty bucks. He's like, it's like two hundred bucks, man. And then he takes it out of the case, it's like a cheap Chinese or it, it like speaks Spanish or something. <laughs> and then like a SWAT team shows up to the warehouse in the middle of it. Like it's just the movie is so stupid, okay? It's great. And then Arnold like beats up a big Santa or something like that. And then he pretends to be a cop which is great too. Um, but <laughs> basically he, throughout the film, he's fighting this one, uh, like sassy mailman. Is the best way to put it. There's like a sassy mailman who's like, Oh yeah, I'm trying to get a turbo man doll too for my son. And like, they basically, they at first are friends, but then like the, the mailman turns on Arnold and like starts driving RC cars on his feet or something like that. So like later on, like Arnold's all beat up after this like a Christmas movie. Yes. After oh, okay. trying to find the toy, for his son, so he sits down at a diner, and of course, for just self-reflection, of course the mailman's there too. And he's like, "Man, I haven't got that doll. We should be friends. We should work together. This movie sucks." Blah 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 blah. And it's like just so much exposition of like 
self-reflection in a movie that is not taken seriously at all mm. and that is not how you do a diner scene so for all you turbo man fans i hope you had a little geek out session with me but for the rest are of there you. any turbo man fans you know there are dude i love turbo man <laughs> so well yes, diners I, I do have another diner scene but i think we should move on i think so too okay so then we wanted to talk about a powerful aspect of a of a narrative which is the power of action um, well, a- a- action and, and choice and choices. Yeah. yeah. I think watching a character's choices and actions in certain scenes really can amplify a narrative, especially when, how do I say this? Especially when their decisions are different than yours or similar, like relatable in some way. If the character yeah. is set up to be relatable and you can step inside their shoes, every action they make should really rivet your attention. So I would I would say, and I don't know if you if you're on board with this um, with me, but I would say this is actually the entire point of narrative. Like this is pretty much the 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 crux of what narrative should do. Is narrative right. narrative should show you a situation, something that even if it is never something that you actually could experience, you could relate to. And show you somebody who who makes a decision, show you the reasons for why they made that decision, and ha- and and you have to to in, infer whether or not that's a good decision or a bad decision. Like I think I think that's like literally the entire point of a narrative. It's it's a disembodiment of of making choices. Right. It's it's like a visualization of like oh somebody is making making a choice. To right. do something in this situation. Now, what would I do now, in that situation? I'm not huge about these kind of sitcom dramas on TV. Uh, Juliana watches like Grey's Anatomy. And literally the show only banks on the drama of character choice. Yeah, She'll tell me, oh my gosh, like I can't believe this character made this choice and now they're dead. You know? <laughs> like that's just, the show is, is very uh, polar right. in, in, a, in a sense. But that is an oversimplification and a form of entertainment where where people can get invested in characters and then their decision-making is what makes the experience. You know, even these narrative-driven video games, literally the choice mechanic is the game. Yeah, That's the exciting part of the game, right? And so we wanted to tap into a specific section. We were talking earlier about some like crime-based films with the diners, but... It seems that this power of action and choice is so important to films that focus on characters who are doing immoral actions. Right, right, right. Um, or, or even just questionable actions, right? Questionable, like, right. Like people who are making choices that maybe you wouldn't do, but you can under and are are maybe immoral or maybe illegal, but but you can understand why they they would do it, and it's questionable. On, you know, right. if it's if it's immoral or not. Right? And it seems that, you know, apocalypse movies really bank on this idea mm, yeah, where, you know, it's like, oh, when society falls apart, like, where's the humanity and the morality, right? Yeah. Well, how come people choose to do certain things? And that's exciting for people to sort of think through right, and, right. and whatnot. But there's a novel that I have a specific beef with <laughs> because it disregards the importance of consequence for action. But not because it doesn't show the consequence for the action, but instead shows it 
shows the action and the consequence for no apparent call to something greater. And I'm not saying that every story has to have a positive ending, but if you've ever read Native Son, you would know that this story is... I, I, I mean, either the writer was only trying to think like, I'm going to show the most disgusting, vile thing in order to present something great. Um, and if he did it for that reason, you did fine. Essentially, it follows the story of a very poor uh, African-American guy who lives, grows up in the ghetto. And I think this is like based in 1940, mm-hmm. 1950. Uh, it's in the past. And essentially, like, I'll never forget it, dude. When we're analyzing it in English, we started talking about how the author used describe the ghettos that they lived in as like cages full of rats. Mm. And we really focused on that idea. So just to kind of give you an idea of what kind of, what sort of gritty, disgusting story this is. Essentially this, this, uh, this black boy gets a job as a limo driver for a rich white girl. Uh, like this family hires him and they're like, Hey, like, you know, we want to help you out. Uh, we're highly involved in the city. We're like, we want to make a good impact for you. And, you know, the, the, the kid basically does the best that he can, except one day he picks up the, the white girl when she's drunk and he's like, great. And then he ends up taking her upstairs and she's being loud. And he's like, I don't want her to get in trouble, which is already stupid. Right. And then he like muffles her and kills her with a pillow, uh, to keep her quiet, which is just very dumb. But like, I'm pretty sure the writer justifies like, oh, he's an uneducated black man, which is very weird and racist as it is but i mean he i think he's trying to go for like a period piece kind of thing where he's like oh like he's just not that smart right and then it just spirals down from there where he ends up cutting up the body and throwing it in the furnace and then it's just like it it spirals out of control where then he just continually does criminal action until he gets thrown in jail and gets sentenced to the death penalty and at that point we're at the end of the book right And he's, then we have this moment of self-reflection where a priest comes and says, Hey, like, you know, God can forgive you for your sins and whatnot. And, you know, like, you don't have much left. You're about to go die in the electric chair. We're going to send you off right now. And he basically just like looks at him and he's like, I'm not sorry for anything I did. And I don't believe in God. So I'm going to go die. And then he just walks straight and dies like very cocky. And the story means nothing. Yeah. I won't say, okay, so I won't say it means nothing. But I don't know how showing the consequence for that action didn't didn't really like spark forth some sort of some sort of response that would be realistic, you know? The kid never has a breakdown. The kid is never like or well, I'm trying to remember if he cries in it in this prison cell. He might but it's like such a one note character that I have just no liking for yeah. it at all. Well, and it seems like the it's not it's not that the actions don't have consequences, but it's almost like there's this this sort of nihilism and and um, I don't know. It, it seems like the story is is um, banking on this idea that you know, his, maybe his choices didn't really matter, you know, and maybe his choices didn't really. Yeah. It was almost like he was started in a trash can and he ended up in a trash can and there's really no fact that he was going to get out of the trash can. Yeah. And I just 
fundamentally couldn't put myself in that shoe because I'm really a strong advocate for like personal responsibility. Yeah. And so maybe it's a subjective thing. If you enjoy Native Son, I'm honestly curious to know why. Uh, there are even, there are very smart people that I know who have looked into this book and they'd look at me like, this is only some sort of weird period piece or something like that, where they're trying to capture, you know, the disparity of a certain class during that time. And there's just so much wasted potential in that. Yeah. So much potential that could be locked in, like really displayed. Um, And so while we're on the subject of crime. Well, I think something, so, so I guess on the flip side, it's like, these actions didn't really have any, uh, I mean, they did have consequences, but they didn't really have any, um, like effect or, or anything, anything where he's, he's sort of self-reflective or, um, anything like that. But, but in, in Breaking Bad, which is, I don't know, one of my favorite TV shows, basically the whole, the whole movie is about, is about TV show. I'm sorry. The whole TV show. (laughs) Cameron watches all what? Eight seasons? Five. All five seasons. Cameron just sits down, and watches all five seasons, like <laughs> over four. How many? How many hours would that be? Um, yeah, over fifty. Fifty hours. Dang. Um, yeah. So, so eyes taped open. You just go for it. <laughs> this movie's great. Um, basically, it's it's about Walt, um, essentially just ruining his life even more and more, and, and it's not Walt Disney. No, not Walt Walter Disney. White. Walter White, um, and it starts with it. It starts with him making a decision that is is wrong and bad, but you can understand why he did it. Right, and then he he doubles down and doubles down and doubles down and keeps making terrible decisions. And about about you know maybe two three seasons in, yeah, three seasons in he's like completely lost sight of what his original, what his original, uh, intent was, which was making money for his family. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and by season three, he's just trying to be the best meth maker in the business. You know, he's (laughs) just doing it for his own personal, personal gain and personal glory. And then season four comes around, you know, there's, there's, you know, sort of an adversarial, um, thing that happens in season four and then season five essentially the whole season is about him understanding what he did understanding why he did it and understanding that basically now it's too late yeah there's there's a um a moment where action is met with consequence but there is a narrative purpose yeah yeah behind it and it hits home different you know, feelings that someone like that could go through. And, and it still ends in, you know, he's, uh, spoilers, I guess, but he still dies in the end. I guess that's not really a spoiler because right. he's got terminal cancer, but he, he dies in the end. But it's, it's essentially, you know, as, is a sad, I guess, ending. It's not really that sad, but, um, but it's, it has a, there's something there's something about him being reflective that entire last season and him being like this is essentially the monster that i've created i'm yeah. the monster that i've that i've created that's so powerful and so um affecting to to the audience where you're like you can do something bad for good intentions and still end up 
being a horrible monster. Yeah. You know? So, I don't know. Yeah, I think the whole, the, the power of action or power consequence and choice um, is a big subject across all narratives. And, and most, I'm pretty sure that all stories have this aspect in it. Yeah. It's just when it's done right, it really supports the narrative in, in a great way. Yeah, well, and, and I think actually we, we were talking earlier about this idea of um, the moral of the story, right? Like you always get told like, or, you you know, you get asked in English class or whatever, like, what's the moral of the story? Right, what's the right. moral of this story? And that's supposed to be like your base analysis. But that doesn't even really matter. It's like it, it's like you can tell the moral of, of Breaking Bad is don't don't make meth <laughs> right like don't don't make terrible deso- decisions uh, you know that's that's a, a simplification but yeah but in any case the 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 importance of breaking bad and why it's five seasons long is is not the moral of of the story it's, it's the journey it's really the journey yeah and it's the it's the deciding the it's what it's what leads up to the moral you right. know if you if you could just boil down the the story into into one sentence, you really you're missing the point of the story. You know, the point of the story is to have supporting evidence and um, backing up that moral claim and showing why why this is this is an important moral imperative or this is a, not the way you should live or whatever. You know. Yeah, and it's not like when people tell you lying is bad. That they're doing it without the experience of knowing why. Yeah, you know, and and I, I mean, you can't <clears throat> you can't say that about every moral, right? When someone's like, "Murder is bad," I'm not hoping that every person that says that has experienced murder, but to some degree, they've experienced how that is bad. Yeah, right? or they know through, through observing yeah, and, yeah. and and you know experiencing life and seeing different things like that. Um, but yeah, no, de- definitely. But but when you when you watch somebody make bad decisions or when you when you watch somebody in a hard situation make the positive decision or make the good decision like <laughs> what was that that was an alarm dude why did you have an alarm set for 7:50 at night that's why i didn't wake up on time this morning <laughs> that explains a lot <laughs> That explains a lot, a lot. <laughs> oh my! That goodness. was awkward. I don't even know what you were talking about. I was talking about um, about the moral of the story and how. Uh, right, uh, right. It's it's not the moral. It's not the moral of the story. If you're if you're focusing on the moral of the story, you're missing the story. Right. Amen. Right. You, I love that. You want you. We watch movies because there is a moral, right? Like that's that's important. It's not it's not that that's not important. Mm. There is a moral to to the stories. But the imp- the important part of the story is the story of how you get to that moral. Mm. You know, it's not like it's 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 you can't just boil it down to one to one aphorism or one sentence. You know, you can't you can't do that. It's it's the it's the narrative process. That's what's so important about this this narrative process and this 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 thing that we're doing this i would say it's it's almost like a unique human experiment is where we're essentially we're we're, we're boiling down decision making processes into visual and written mediums that that other people can watch and read and say oh this is 
this is how I should live my life, or this is not how I should live my life. Yeah, I mean, you look back all the way to the Greeks with their stories about, you know, the gods and, and their stories, uh, like the Odyssey and the Iliad and, and things like that. And um, those are there for the moral of the story, but the story was the part that really helped people get to that moral, right? right. right? And, and I don't think it's any different now, right? No, we have storytelling, maybe not with a guy telling a story to an auditorium. Instead, we have new ways to help people really consume these ideas and morals, yeah. which which lays a big responsibility on the person who is making those stories well. As well. And, it, and it, like we were talking about earlier with the idea of propaganda, it's like it, it doesn't just make a responsibility on the person to be, to be a moral person, right? Because most, most of the people in Hollywood have, are probably not more. What are you people. talking about? They're all saints. <laughs> um, but but it it actually I think like do you have you have you read any Dostoevsky? No. Well Dostoevsky is a really interesting writer because one of the things that he does is he makes he makes the the bad case the most compelling case. Mm. And he he essentially like steelmans the the devil's the, advocate position yeah yeah exactly very interesting and and so you know you read crime and punishment and basically the the whole the whole book is is about um you know the 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 guy the main the main character saying i can get away with this murder and be okay yeah and then he does it <laughs> and then when he does it he's like he he's essentially like stricken mad because he's he's gotten away with murder. Right. And, and so like he, you know, it, I, I think Dostoevsky is super interesting because he's, he, he's interested in, sorry, that was my stomach. It was oh the burrito. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I was like, did something just hit the window? It sounded like a bird tapping against the window. No, it was, it was clearly a different bird it. trying to come out. Yeah. It's just, it's just, it, there's something in there. Squack. You know? What are you talking about? Um, Dostoevsky is such an inter interesting writer because he he builds up the strongest position for for the for the opposition position, and, and he tries to combat that, you know, and that's that's what you you should be doing when you're when you're making a moral argument, right? Like that's what that's what you should be doing is is thinking about okay, well, what it you know what what could somebody say against this this argument? Yeah, when someone doesn't show the path to the moral point. That's when you probably know it's propaganda. Yeah. Right? When yeah. they're just like, this is the moral point. This is the moral point. You know, it's like there's got to be an explanation for that yeah. as well. Right? Um, <clears throat> let's sort of move on from this. Okay. I think the power of action decisions is probably the most important part of narratives for definitely, us. Definitely. Right? So we're going to get into some other little side things that we think are fun and also give us an opportunity to talk about things that we think do a good job of it. Cameron, please, like, we're coming up on an hour, man. You can't spend six hours talking about this. <laughs> what, Batman? <laughs> As you, If you didn't know, Cameron is a huge Dark Knight fan. I love the Dark Knight. And the one of the things that the Dark Knight does so well is this idea of, of chaos and order. And just to briefly summarize... Chaos is obviously the Joker. Order is is obviously the Batman. And, and this 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 is essentially the the whole axiom of the movie is that is that chaos is um, 
chaos can happen in any in any order in any ordered position and the the biggest goal for chaos is to to make to make order become chaos essentially mm. and so so that's that's the joker's goal right that's the joker's goal is to get to get batman to to break his own rules right and and batman's rules are are you know his own structured order so that he doesn't he doesn't violate any any of his own you know moral principles and the joker's the joker the the only way for the joker not to win would be if if batman violated those those moral principles yes and and, and that's to me that's like such a brilliant it's such a brilliant embodiment of that of that idea that that chaos is is essentially just wanting order to 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 bear down on itself and to you know and and so so that chaos will will come up out of the order right and you know what's crazy about the dark knight is that you could totally watch this film and not even notice yeah. that black and white dichotomy and I think most people enjoy exploring the gray of certain certain ideas yeah. and whatnot. So to be able to present a black and white in a very interesting way is very compelling. And I, I think that's why uh, The Dark Knight works so well as a movie. Well, because it because both the black and the white have pretty good points, right? Like like Batman is probably right to not want to kill the Joker, but he's also but the Joker is also probably, you know, I mean, he like that's he he's right to say that the only way that that he wouldn't win is is for him to die, right? Right. You know, it's like so so they both are they both have really compelling arguments. I would say it's yeah. not just black and white; it's that black and white are like very strong against each other. Yeah, this idea of the yin and yang kind of you know concept is is nothing new. No, but it no, is no. very cool to see visualized and. Something like a superhero movie. Right. Right. And I think that's what a lot of people enjoy about superhero movies. And even any any movies with heroes is watching someone with a good like a good heart and good intention fight someone who has the complete opposite. Right. There there's just someone who's pure evil. Now I know a lot of people can be like, oh, like the thing about the Joker is that he's not just pure evil. He he seems more complex than that. But every once in a while, I still enjoy a movie where it's like a character is really good just to be good. He's just like a pure character, right? Against a character who's just really bad and very specifically bad. And I can see how that has been done in a plethora of shallow ways. Yeah. yeah. But it always seems... What I do notice is that we get a lot of films where it's like the character is just pure good and then the villain is like gray, or like, or just uncompelling. Or, or, or like you know, then or the or the hero is like gray, and then the villain is like bad, bad. You yeah. know, so if you look at like anti-heroes like Deadpool, it's like you know, Deadpool is interesting because he's not your normal hero, but then the villains, there's not that dichotomy because the villains are just bad to be bad. They're just right. they serve a different purpose, right? That that I that concept isn't there. And like on on the flip side, you know, you have someone like Ray in The Force Awakens who's just pure good for no reason, right? She's just clean, good, she good guy. You know she good guy. And then <laughs> Kylo Ren is like, for some reason, you know, he's bad, but he doesn't come across as, like, completely evil. Like, he's trying to prove yeah, to yeah, you yeah, yeah. That, that he's, he's evil. super evil, yeah. <laughs> but no one is convinced in the audience, right? Yeah. Everyone's like, 
he's he's young, so he's probably going to be good eventually, right? Or he's probably going to be some sort of, you know, gray area character. Um, one of the worst examples, though. So, so what I'm saying is it, it's not that it has to exist. All black and white, like, is not needed in every story. But when a film attempts to put them up, like to have a good versus evil, and that's like one of the main staples of the story, and it falls short, it, it's a total train wreck, just like man, <laughs> just like Man of Steel. Yeah, well, and I think what's so what's like the the absolute necessary if you're going to make you know a good character good and an evil character evil is for there to be a reason why they're that way, <laughs> right? Like, I, yes. There there needs to be there needs to be something that compels them to be good and something that compels them to be evil. Evil, which, which I actually think this movie that we're go- going to talk about does kind of set up the Man of Steel. <laughs> yeah, I think it does actually set up a reason for why why uh, Superman wants to save his home and why uh, you know Zod wants to to terraform the earth right but it's also it's also just a horrible representation of 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 you know chaos and order it's it's like they're both order (laughs) and both chaos and both chaos. yeah exactly they cause utter destruction and then they're both like have sticks up their butt yeah and they and and superman's supposed to be this like good guy he's supposed to be like yeah i'm so my cousin my cousin who's like a street preacher uh (laughs) We went to go see Superman, okay, and he, and I love, I love my cousin Chris. He's a great guy, okay, but he's very set on moral stuff, you could say. Sure. And we're watching Man of Steel, and he like steals clothes off a a, a clothesline, like right off the beginning, and he leans over to me, he's like, "Isn't Superman supposed to be like a good guy? Well, he just <laughs> straight up stole those guys' clothes, right?" And I'm like, know about property rights? Yeah, but it's just like a small thing. Yeah. But that just echoed throughout the rest of the film for me. I'm like, (laughs) Superman steals clothes? And then, like, I'm watching him kick down buildings with me. I'm like, I don't know if he's really that much of a good guy. Right, right. It was a very funny theater experience. Which is like the total Zack Snyder pivot, right? Where, Where in Batman v Superman, he was like, He's like, I don't know, Superman's supposed to be the good guy or the bad guy. You know, that was like his whole angle. But that's totally not that not what what the the movie intended, right? It was intended that that Superman was supposed to be the good guy, obviously, and Zod was supposed to be the bad guy. Yeah. But 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 it's just it's just so poorly done. They're both they're both um like Zod is very structured as a as a villain yes he's like very like i need to do this because i need a world for my for my people right you know makes sense yeah right and and then superman is like i need to do this because (laughs) (laughs) because my mom (laughs) oh it's always his mom huh yeah it is his mom um but the dichotomy of chaos and order can be very effective when placed in a narrative uh, in in a in a respectful way, I I definitely think it, it's an aspect. Did you have something else to add to that? I didn't mean to cut you off. I'm no, just... it's just it's just Man of Steel's bad. Not Man of Steel's bad. Man. Yeah. All right, so we got two more for you. A couple aspects we were meditating on before. Mm. Oh. Uh, one of something that I think really helps a powerful narrative is when it respects humanity, 
specifically in the department of loss or departure. And the reason I said this is I, I recently watched the episode where Michael leaves the office. Mm. And I almost teared up, okay? Sure. This is my first time watching The Office. And I've I rem, I, when we finished it, I was sitting next to Jules, and I said, I've never seen any sort of media present departure in that way. Yeah. The, the act of saying goodbye to people secretly, in, in a sense, like, because Michael doesn't tell people yeah, that he's yeah, leaving yeah. that day. He just wants to have, he wants to leave everyone with a good taste in their mouth and none of that sad goodbye stuff. And it's, it's so powerful. And I, I love it because like some people get like the short end of the stick that he doesn't really care about that much. <laughs> like the show is funny. So there's a part where he has like three people in his office. And he's like, just want to let you know that, uh, it's been a great, uh, time or something like that. And he's like, but I'll be here tomorrow. Even though he's not going to be there tomorrow. He's like, yeah, I'm just running out of time till four o'clock. So that's it. And like, <laughs> and, and eventually one of the characters catches on and they have a very sentimental moment, uh, where they're just like, goodbye, suck goodbyes are, are really hard to do and they both like tear up and it's really good acting but it sells it man like yeah, there's yeah, a yeah. really raw human element to it um i think a great series that also tackles this is lord of the rings totally for sure we were talking about the end of the fellowship yeah which is i mean it's it's like you know when i first saw that it was still just heartbreaking you know this this it's not even really a goodbye. I mean, there, there's, there's elements of goodbye and the, the fellowship is breaking, right? It's fragmenting and, and, you know, Boromir is, Boromir dies. And that's, that's kind of an, that's a really interesting conversation on its own. Right. Right. Um, but, but the goodbye has essentially Frodo is, he's saying goodbye and, and not even, not even telling people that he's leaving. He's just gone. He, he thinks that this is the, the burden that, that he needs to carry for the rest of the fellowship and, and he needs to do it on his own. And his best friend, Sam is not having that, you know, and he, and he runs and, and, you know, almost drowns. And it's like, I made a, I made a, a promise to protect you, Sam. Yeah. Frodo, I made a promise to protect you. It's just such a real human interaction and, and it cuts through and really amplifies the narrative for the yeah, whole story. Totally. The end of that movie would not be as great if the fellowship fragmented in a sense where, you know, the characters didn't have a moment to show like their human element. Yeah. They're they're like flawed, falling apart, you know, trying to keep it together sort of element. And and before that scene, you know, they had lost Gandalf, who had been their leader, and you know, you see Boromir really kind of fall into an evil calling and whatnot and you know he he dies but it's still an honor and whatnot and there's these ideas that just the end of that movie is exciting because you're like oh i know there's more to come but it's it really highlights that element you know and i and i think it's it's really it's really cool it's really powerful yeah um the end of the it end always of, makes me tear up every time. Yeah, the end of the Lord of the Rings is is pretty similar, but something about the Fellowship breakup is 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 yeah. substantially. If I can't carry the ring, I'll carry <laughs> you. That's the end of the. Yeah, I know. yeah. <laughs> so yes, the respect of humanity, you know, pow- the power of loss and departure. I think a lot of war movies do this totally. fairly well. Sometimes war movies fail terribly at it. Oh my gosh, there are a lot of bad. <laughs> war films too but specifically uh saving private ryan we just before this we watched a scene where um someone gets slowly shanked to death and it is 
disgusting and brutal. Like I'm, we're watching it. I'm like, this is horrible, man. Like that movie holds up its grittiness, dude. It's very rough. Um, but that, that movie really highlights the humanity, even, even to where the point where it has, as we were talking earlier, a a reflective moment Mm. where they, they decide if they're going to kill a German, uh, troop or not. Um, it, it really uses reflective moments to only, you know, project the human element in all of it. Yeah. Right. Uh, because I think in those brutal situations, the human element and losing people and departures is very strong. Well, and and I think it's, it's what, it's what shows you like in those, in those adverse situations, it, what it, it, it shows you like who you actually are. Yeah. Like if you're actually a good person or not. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I would say most people in that situation are just aren't. Yeah. I think, well, yeah. I mean, we don't have any experience in combat no. or war, but it does not seem like it would help you be the best person no, it when seems you're rough. trembling in fear and whatnot. Um, some bad examples of departure leaving. Uh, shout out to my boy Jazz in Transformers <laughs> 1. He gets ripped in half by Megatron and no one cares. Um, except for, I think Ratchet picks up his dead two pieces. He's like petting his head at the end of the movie, but no one cares. I'm like, not a cool way, man. Jazz was awesome in the cartoons. You just throw him away. What is it? Because Pontiac went out of business. Did Pontiac go out of business? (laughs) Yeah. Uh Doesn't exist anymore. And Jazz was a Pontiac. Oh, I see. So, uh, but a more relevant one is, uh, Han Solo's death in episode seven. Um, not... Not uh, not a nice farewell to a character. Yeah, he kind of had a like. I'm out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Han Solo, I'm going. I'm out, dude. But just from a narrative perspective, I was like, okay. like consider if consider if Han Solo had died in in episode five, right? Mm. Like that's 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 that would have been yeah, that would have been more powerful. And and to some people who saw that while those films were still coming out, that was a. It's, that that was an impactful moment, right? Yeah. Right, because you know my dad will talk about, dude. When I saw episode five, I had to wait like three years or three years to wait for the next one. <laughs> Everyone who saw Empire when it first came out, they they have the same exact yeah. the same exact story. We're like, I had to wait forever to see what happened. That's because it's honing in on the power of loss, departure, and respecting the human element. Yeah, and in episode seven, it's kind of just like a. Harrison Ford wants to quit. Everyone knows. <laughs> Say goodbye. Chewie is always here. Chewie's in every movie. Yeah. Chewie is in a real person. We can just hire an Another NBA tall player. Guy. Yeah. <laughs> Chewie, um, Chewie will never leave. Although Peter Peter Mayhew is kind of a he's a he's a legend, you know. Yes. But yes. In, in any case, <laughs> I think it's fine. It's fine. It's a fine moment. But it's it, not like it's abrupt and it yeah it's not like the best way that you could you could kill off Han Solo. I'll just say that. Yeah, dude, where's that like western like the end of Red Dead Redemption kind of moment for yeah. Han Solo? That's what I wanted. Yeah, where you like stand. Yeah, imagine if like he a just, standoff. Like, that would have yeah, been way cooler. Been cool. that been He's cool. like, this is the last one to go, Chewie, and then like he takes a shot of like Star Wars vape or something. Whatever's like a cool <laughs> cigar, you know, a cool Star Wars cigar. Star Wars vape. Kicks open the door. Pow, 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 and then he just gets like twelve blaster shots to his chest and like falls down. That would be so cool. Yeah. Or he gets, or he dies like Boromir. Like imagine yeah. if he died like Boromir. What if he like had a last moment with Chewie? No last moment with oh, Chewie. Yeah. You know, 
Like we've been yeah, like, there needs like you're yeah, not. You're we would have all cried if he if he had like a like. Doesn't he say something like, "Oh, you're no woman. longer like you're no longer like in endowed to slavery or whatnot"? To me, he's or, not a slave. Well, like doesn't <laughs> isn't there? Not a slave. Yeah, there's some weird line where it's like in episode four where they're like, "Oh, Han saved Chewie from slavery or something," so he's like a servant to him or something like that. Maybe there's a weird sure. line in in the New Hope about it. I don't I don't I'm know. I'm not sure. I don't know exactly. Yeah, um, but not according to Solo, a Star Wars story. Well, their ex- explanation was that they freed he freed Chewie. Yeah, no, so that's true. Um, yeah, so uh, that is also an important aspect of narrative. We're coming up here to the end, but a last one that we wanted to touch on was the power of sacrifice, mm. which kind of coincides with you know, loss and departure. But a film that I thought, a story that I thought did a great job showing the power of sacrifice is Whiplash. Definitely. Which is a film about a music student who gives it his all for a professor who is a total jerk and um, played by J.K. Simmons, right? Yeah, yeah. And basically... Oh, you know who's in Jennifer's body? (laughs) J.K. Simmons? Was he part of Fallout Boy? No, he's an old teacher who has one hand. <laughs> Does he get eaten? No. Oh, too bad. Yeah, that would have no. been funny. Would have been. He's. He's. That the, also would have been fairly inappropriate. He's, he's the MVP of that movie, though. Oh. Yeah. Seriously. He's, Shout out. He's really good. Everyone, we're going to see Jennifer's Body at AMC Saratoga on Friday. No, I'm just kidding. We're not doing that. Um, it's also so, not in theaters. <laughs> not anymore. It's in two thousand. It it was came out in two thousand nine. Oh, what the heck? Yeah. I think you're talking about it like it's a brand new movie. No, no, no. <laughs> well, this is news to me. <laughs> we should get it to play in that, like, what's that theater you go to see, like, old art movies? Um, Alamo Drafthouse. Let's get it to play in Alamo Drafthouse. Yeah, maybe. That sounds like a great I idea. saw Fight Club in uh, at the Alamo Drafthouse. It was really good. Very, very cool, Cameron. Let's just, like, movie. wrap up this podcast, okay? <laughs> Jeez. Um... So Power Sacrifice, Whiplash is about a student who gives it his all to play these drums. He kind of, he's really good, but the teacher's like, you suck, you suck, you suck. And it drives him to the point of like, yeah, it drives him to the point of like going crazy almost. And that movie kind of shows a message between like two power figures where they're like, they have to give it all. They have to sacrifice everything they have. Like, doesn't he end up losing his girlfriend? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He loses so much just to play in this stupid band. And at the end, he does it. Right, yeah. But it shows, he, he like, it. yeah, he destroy it. He destroys it. He does such a good job as the drummer. Um, really a great film. You should see it. It's not too long, and it's very entertaining. Amazing film. Um, but that movie shows the power of sacrifice. I think it's on my top five of the past ten years. It's surprisingly good. It's an amazing movie. For someone who doesn't enjoy jazz too much, Yeah, I like jazz after that. Definitely. It's a really Definitely. good movie, yeah. yeah. Um, but Sacrifice is seen in a bunch of, a bunch of movies. Well, and so the thing about Whiplash is basically what its what its claim is is like you gotta you have to sacrifice everything yeah. if you want to if you want to reach your dreams. Heavy handed message. Re- definitely, yeah. definitely. Um, and you know another movie <laughs> that doesn't talk about <laughs> sacrificing everything. <laughs> oh, but it tries. <laughs> is, is the Last Jedi, but specifically we're, a sequence. We're coming out with the references, you guys. We really are. Nothing but Star Wars. I know we're we're <laughs> we're big shills. We're big shills for Star Wars. Um, Our first episode of the podcast was a Han Solo movie review. Yeah, 
what a strange first episode for everything comes from something. Yeah. We tend to pick more of an intellectual route. Yeah, we did. Yeah. But not for, well, I mean, credits to our first episode. All We're right, the best. Let's get back to. We're the best. Let's get back to to Rose's sacrifice. <laughs> you mean Finn? Star so there's this Wars. great f- moment in the Last Jedi where one of the main characters, Finn, who does absolutely nothing in most of the films, decides no, in that film specifically. In that he film, does something in, in. No, he's he's a pretty good character. In, yeah, I liked it, him in the first one. The episode seven, I liked him. But in episode eight, he does like nothing, um, and he decide he only screws up stuff. He destroys uh, a casino planet. Um, frees a frees a frees a dog. Man gets upset beast. when he's put in jail for illegally parking. You know, so I uh, man, I every time I think about that movie, I think about just how like so much of that movie is stupid. It's kind of stupid. So even though I like it overall, Finn is got like a good feeling. Let's calm down. But okay. it just well, we disagree. A lot of it is stupid. Did you know that one of our listeners said that we don't? We just agree on everything. That's not true. That's not true. I hate Cameron. First of all, that's why we do this show. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, do we agree on everything? No. I know you're a socialist pig. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, so. Where, where were we? <laughs> Dude, once we hit a minute, uh, an hour and five, like it just goes off the rails. It really does. So enjoy it while it lasts. We have no... Finn is driving into a massive mini Death Star turbine and he's like, I do nothing. I'm doing nothing. So I'm going to do something finally. And so he's like, there's all this epic swelling music and he's like about to give his life. And I, for me, when I was sitting there in the theater, I'm like, dang. This is like intense because yeah. the movie has high highs and low lows. That's right. my big problem. It, yeah, totally, totally. With The Last Jedi, it's high highs and low lows. Um, and I'm like, wow, this is, wow, this is super intense. And then like Rose saves him. Like she well, cra- Rose crashes. So Rose <laughs> sabotages Finn's heroic suicide. Right. Okay. And then as Finn comes out of the cockpit, he's like, what the heck? What are you doing? What are you doing? And she's like, don't you know? Sacrifice, sacrificing the ones you love is the ones you love is we have to fight for the ones you love or something terrible like that. <laughs> <laughs> she says the worst, most terrible line in in the entire movie. And you know why she said that? Even worse than she said Shut it because... up and follow my orders. <laughs> <laughs> she said it because Mickey said that she had to say it. <laughs> So, <laughs> well, but imagine, imagine the flip side, right? Imagine, imagine Finn is driving into, he's like, you know, the music is swelling and then it just blasts and he just burns up like a cartoon. <laughs> yeah. But you know why they didn't do that? It's because, oh boy, can't sell any more toys. <laughs> yeah. Well, they needed to sell those uh, Finn toys. No. Okay. Okay. So think about how many Finn toys would be on the discount rack. But here's the problem. All the Star Wars toys are on the discount rack right sure, now. Sure, yeah. But Juzo says that basically that, that sequence... What, is Juzo a host on this podcast? He should be. He I'm should just kidding. Be. He says that basically the the that scene would have been okay if she had just been like, what are you doing, you idiot? That's not going to work. <laughs> right? Like, if, yeah. if, it, if it was clear that his sacrifice was not 
obviously going to do anything. Like, it probably would have been better. Let me just tell you something, Cameron. When we take levels for this show before we start recording, <laughs> and you start eating the mic, like, once we start recording, it's very frustrating for me. Well, I apologize if our audio is a little bit off. No, we're our audio's fine. We're trying. We're trying. Our audio's fine. Our audio's perfect. Perfect. This show is perfect. Perfect. So, anyways... There are plenty of aspects in movies, okay, and stories and narratives that we believe make them better, okay? There are just, that's just a handful of different ideas that we just threw out on on the board. Just like Princess Diaries when she's throwing darts at the paint oh, on the I wall. I love that movie. <laughs> okay? Just like that. That's what we're doing right now. Just, we're, we're princesses. Um, prince eyes. Uh, so, <laughs> so, um... Yeah, we hope you we hope we hope you enjoyed our brainstorm. Well, it's getting I, late, and I think I think. What, oh, I'm gonna let thing, you hold on. I'm gonna let you talk. And I'm just saying, thing, like, this is a wrap up. If if you're like, gosh, I cannot stand the sound of their voice <laughs> any longer. We appreciate you listening this far. At this point, we're just gonna keep going. Because, an important thing to to note, right, is that these aren't the only like theme. I think we kind of just boiled it down to like specific <laughs> themes that we that have really made an impact on us. Not, Personally, right? They're not required to have a powerful. Not narrative. that, and there's also like way more in the world that we just didn't, you know, can't cover. Right, you know, and there, a, there's like so many other things that make a story powerful. For example, I know you enjoy certain documentaries, right? Yeah, like March of the Penguins. Oh man, I'm just I hate kidding. That movie. I'm just kidding. That but, movie is so boring. But documentaries don't necessarily follow this narrative. These narrative aspects, right? As a matter of fact, I don't think any documentaries really well, deal no, it's with. It's not a narrative. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a story, but it's not a narrative. But, but it's some, a true some, story. Some can argue, right, sure. that a documentary could come across as a narrative. Yeah. Especially when you're telling retelling historical events. Yeah. To yeah, some yeah. degree, um, but those are still stories, you know, or narratives, right, that don't necessarily abide by these aspects. Because these are not definitive set aspects. This is just us being the Princess Diaries, okay? <laughs> Throwing darts at a board. <laughs> if you don't know what we're talking about, there is a scene in that film where the mom is yeah, the throwing mom. darts an, at balloons. In, in, like, the biggest air quotes. She's an artist. Yeah, no one but can she see had, you doing that, can She we? lives, I know, but she lives in, in an ex-firehouse. And she throws darts at balloons full of paint in order to create a strange image that would work well on Pinterest. Yeah. It's it's not a very good movie. That's what it is, dude. But it's a really good movie. That's what it is. Ladies and gentlemen, if you enjoyed episode 13 of Everything Comes From Something... What feel, if this is actually episode 14? Feel free to correct us on our episode numbers. <laughs> and also... Check out our Patreon at ECFS Podcast. We also have... Patreon.com slash ECFS Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And we also have the good old regular uh, socials. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Cameron's in, started, uh, Cameron's in charge of the Twitter. That's why it sucks. So, um, just <laughs> Yeah, wanna... I haven't been clapping back to... I should retweet some Hot Pockets. You should retweet something. Yeah, I should. For once. I don't follow anything on my on that Twitter. Yeah, yeah. yeah oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So that's it. That's the episode. We're done. Are we done? We're done. Thank goodness. Thank goodness we're done. <laughs> so what's going on with you? Uh, you know, not much. Okay, I, so I've we're been watching Ozark. We're done. That's been pretty good. That's it. We're done.
<laughs> if they uh, if they sit through the silence, if they sit through the silence, that means they probably got this extra part at the end, <laughs> which is where we're launching our second topic for the show. Oh yeah, we are. Oh yeah. What's our second topic? Shh. Jennifer's body. <laughs> Not Jennifer's body. <laughs> Let's talk about the fact that you have never seen Transformers. Dude, I... I One, yeah, two, three, four. I've never seen Transformers. Any Transformers movie. That's a mistake. Really? And we should watch... I did watch... see the first G.I. Joe, though. Dude, G.I. Joe 2 is better. Yeah, that's what I heard. I've told you. I've told you because of the nuclear... Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the nuclear missile crisis solution. <laughs> the other day, I was having a conversation with... Uh, Jules and my brother, mm-hmm. and we were talking about how mu- terrible it must be to live in Florida. Right now, or just just in general, just in general, it's terrible right now because they're in a flood, right? Well, they're also you know there was there was that shooting recently, and it seems like there's a couple different shootings in Florida recently. That's true, yeah. Uh, and and then we were also talking about you know how it's close to Cuba. <laughs> <laughs> And so we started talking about okay. Castro. Okay. Because yeah. he's still alive, you know? Don't you know? No. He's, he's still alive. No, and he's so dead. He's very much dead. You know, Castro. No, Castro's dead. He's got the Bay of Pigs. He died in like 2012. That whole, that whole Bay of Pigs situation. Okay. That you know? was not Castro. That, that was, was all Castro. <laughs> and then we've got. JFK. But, we've got the people know. swimming over from Cuba. And they're getting eaten by the gators. Is it? Did that happen? And so I'm pretty sure my conspiracy goes like this. Castro hired the gators (laughs) and called them Castro gators. Okay. And then the gators eat the refugees. So that's why we don't see any of the refugees. What are you talking about? We see, well, there are a ton of Cuban refugees. We don't see any. In Florida. And we only see fat gators that's what on the, golf courses on that's YouTube. What the, that's what the Cuban uh, the Cuban sandwich is. Right? So now you're getting into the Cuban Missile Crisis. Well, which the is Cuban a whole Missile cri- Crisis. Yeah, that, that was interesting. See, I disagree with you. It's not interesting? I, I disagree because apparently I never disagree with you. <laughs> no, no. The Cuban Missile Crisis is, a, is an interesting. It was an interesting situation. Everybody was so tense. So tense. I've seen Mad Men. You clearly lived through that. I did. So. Secrets is that I'm actually 80 years old. Secrets are that we are wasting people's time. No, we're not. They don't have to be listening to this. We said we said this is the. the this, <laughs> this is the secret. Uh, this is the bonus cast, talk this, is talk. The, this is the secret Castro Gators. Uh, I'm not even sure what you mean by that. I think. <laughs> Do we need to get you to a hospital? Castro gators are the real problem in the United States. <laughs> what, what does... I don't know what that means. I just needed to tell you, Cameron. I needed to tell you on the air. This is a live reaction. Thank you for thank you for informing me. Just about like and subscribe day. and like and some... Hey, guys! It's like and subscribe here. <laughs> I don't even know if we should keep it going. I mean, I don't know. At this point. If you listen to Everything Comes From Something, that means you listen to the raw, uncut stuff. I've been recently listening to other podcasts. They talk about how they edit their show and and they clean it up really well. And I thought to myself, man, I don't have time for that. 
Yeah, I don't I have time for that. And then also, I'm like, so what? I'm gonna let it all hang out. You know, let it all hang I'm out. Let it all hang out. And Just like those Castro Gators. <laughs> <laughs> they got big bellies from eating all the refugees. <laughs> it's Castro's dying wish to the Gator King. To the he said, gator he king. said "Please, do you keep know them. about do you know about Rat Kings?" I do. Yeah, yeah. Were you the one that told me about the Rat I Kings? I think so. Yeah. Now I tell my high school students about <laughs> the Rat Kings. <laughs> Because we have controllers at the high school room at yeah. my church, and like they're always tangled, and I'm like, you know what this reminds me of, a and then king. they'll they'll just roll their eyes. <laughs> well, anyway, we should tell people about the rat kings. So Why rat don't you kings, go go ahead? Rat kings are these horrific, <laughs> horrific images that you look up on Google Images. <laughs> <laughs> And basically what they are is when rats get in a space that's, like, too tight, they, like, start climbing all over each other. Ew. And they're... they're Think Indiana Jones 3, baby. <laughs> and their tails get all tied up in each other. And then they start moving as a conglomerate. <laughs> and then they die. And they die and they become this this big rat. Like, it, it looks like... It looks like a wig... With rats on the end. Wow. It's the I most know. disgusting thing I, you've ever seen. <laughs> I've seen it. I can't... Dude, whenever we laugh, we're like peeking the microphones. Like I know. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, all right. That's going to wrap it up because our computer's starting to lag. Okay. And so we're heating. But we hope you enjoy the show. We hope you enjoy the secret segment. That's the longest episode we've done, I think. Definitely. Yeah. All right, guys. We'll talk to you next week. We got a special show coming up soon eventually hopefully we can get it done next week but if not we will still have a great interesting show for you all right have a good one